Hello, and welcome to the Terrible Reading Club, conversations with authors who wrote good books for terrible times. Those of us with parents who are consistent and present, who gave us stability and love and who nurtured and cared for us, we sometimes don't know how lucky we are, how lucky we were to have our needs met as kids. And maybe luck isn't the right word because this is actually our birthright. We are born deserving to be loved and prioritized and cared for, not just physically, but emotionally. We don't know when we're telling our mother that she's the worst mom in the world because she doesn't want to take us to Target for body glitter after a long day of work that actually our mom is just tired and drawing a boundary and the worst moms in the world don't sit around waiting to hear the critiques of their children. There are kids who have grown up without the kind of parents you see on 90s sitcoms. Kids whose parents abdicated all responsibility, who walked off the job, who just didn't do the one thing they were supposed to have done. And the writer Danielle Henderson is one of those kids. She's a grown-up now, a writer of TV and of her memoir, The Ugly Cry, a book that traces Danielle's childhood as a Black girl in a very white town in upstate New York with her brother, Corey, and a mother who is distant and struggling with her own life's disappointments. At 10 years old, Danielle's mother drops her and Corey off at their grandparents' house for the weekend. But the weekend doesn't end, and Danielle and her brother are raised by their grandmother, who does not let them win at Monopoly, lets them watch horror movies, and loves them both very dearly, even if she is nothing like the other grandmas they know. This book is, in a lot of ways, a love letter to a grandmother like no other, described on the opening page like this. I've never seen my grandmother bake a cookie, wear a shawl, give good advice, or hug a child unprompted. I have, however, heard her curse so intensely, I swear she was making some of them up on the spot, watched her obsess over horror movies with an academic intensity, and listened to her frequent lectures about the reasons every woman should not only carry a knife at all times, but be fully prepared to use it. A man wants to put his hands on you? Carry a little secret knife. Cut his throat. Ask questions later. Here is our episode with Danielle Henderson. Okay, so now we can talk about you. We can talk about your book. And also, here's what I like to, because I know you've been getting to slash having to talk about the book for so long. Are there also things where you're like, here's something I really want to talk about that nobody asked me about the book or like people keep missing about it? There really isn't anything that I feel like, like nobody asked me about this, but I think you already get the one thing that I'm kind of like, hmm, I wish they got it. Sometimes people go for either the comedy of the book or the tragedy of the book, right. and they do not mix the two, but I do not think that's going to be a problem. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. At all. Yeah. I, uh, I was also, like, so, like, thrilled to see Augustine Burroughs uh, blurbed it, and that you know him, obviously. Uh, those books, like, belong, like, on a shelf next to his because they do the same thing so artfully, which is, like... You find, and I wonder if you're just sort of like naturally inclined towards this as a person, I believe I am, like you're so observant 
that you are present for your suffering Mm -hmm. in such a way that you also naturally see the levity in those moments. Absolutely. It is like the number one thing I talk about in therapy, 100%. Because my therapist is like, well, you always go to, to humor as a way to kind of talk about your trauma. And I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't be here if I didn't. I wouldn't have survived yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> like I need to look at the totality of the experience in order to just comprehend what I am experiencing. Yes. But I also really do think that there are some situations that are just both. They are just inherently funny and inherently awful. And it has never served me in my life to just focus on one side or the other. Um, I think I feel like more of a whole person by looking at that experience, you know, having a a full experiential (laughs) duty to realizing that this is fucking weird. (laughs) Yeah, that is weird. And I think part of it is uh, it's not as if you can look at yourself and your work and, you know, and be like, these are all the ingredients that made it possible for me to do this. Kind of feel like you can either do it or you can't. And I do think it's kind of a personality trait. And, you know, what I'm proposing is it might be genetic because your grandmother has both of those things, too. So, you know, the book opens and it's a description of everything that your grandmother is not. Which, which, is, which is surprisingly a long list. Like, like, okay. <laughs> you know, it's she, a very thorough, thorough it's, a, it's a very thorough list. And so we know right away that you are not going to have the kind of grandma who makes like homemade applesauce. And, you know, and wears a shawl and bakes cookies and wants you to like sit on her lap while she, you know, tells you a fairy tale about how everything is going to be okay and assures you that you are a beautiful and special little creature and she could never live without you. (laughs) It was so the opposite of that, that it was its own kind of abuse. Like that is how much further she went to the other side. And she has truly always been that person where she was not going to... She was definitely not going to capitulate when it came to parenting or grandparenting. She's like, this is who I am. I'm showing up like this for every job I have and every relationship I have, whether it's at work, out in the world with my friends, with my grandkids. She truly, um, she does not bend and she's very rigid about who she is. And she definitely is someone who uh, uses humor to address any kind of situation happening in her life, whether it's, you know, just... Just how many times could you hear someone call your own mother and her own child an asshole before you're like, is that okay? Like, I know I feel that way, but is that okay? Like, we were driving past uh, the park because we now live in the same town again. I just moved home and I bought this house and she's going to be moving in with me. And I took her out for a coffee the other morning. We were driving past the park and now public parks now are like the safest place in the world for children. To the point where I saw a baby on a zip line. Like someone put their kid in like one of those little crotch cradles and like sent it down a zip line to the other parent all the way across the park. And I'm like, my grandmother and I looked at each other at a stop sign and she was like, I wouldn't have put, there's no way that kid should learn how to be a real kid, put some concrete under there, get that baby out of that car. And I'm like, oh, grandma, it's, it just never ends with her. Like she even sees now things that are safe and it's like an affront to her that there's safety in the world for children. <laughs> yeah. Now we put kids in car seats oh, and they do have to wear seatbelts and they can't sit in the front seat. Yeah. Why don't you just put them on your lap, put them on the yeah. floor in the back seat. That's safe. Had no use for it at all. And she always, in a very strange way, it is something that 
that I do find as an adult I am having to address and that I also had to address when I was writing this book, I never really stopped to think, is the way that I'm being raised by her abusive or traumatic? Because a lot of people have written to me and said like, oh my gosh, like between your mom and your grandma, I don't know how you did it. And I, I always think, well, my grandma was the best and my mom was the worst and that's how I did it. But I can see how from the outside in, when you don't grow up in that kind of cultural uh, world as well, where I think that in Black culture, I found that it is very much like pick yourself up, dust yourself off and keep going, which we've, again, culturally had to do for a very long time. And she just folded that into her parenting. So I think that I never considered it. And when I started therapy like 20 years ago, I remember my first therapist was like, yeah, that's, you really just weren't supported anywhere. And that rubbed me the wrong way because I thought, no, I did receive a tremendous amount of report, support from my grandmother. It just didn't look the way that support looked for you. Mm. So her idea of supporting me and encouraging me wasn't to say, sky's the limit. You can do anything. You're a beautiful, special, sunshiny flower. Her support was more like, yeah, the world sucks. It's going to be hard for you. You're smart about certain things and you should be independent and you should not rely on anybody and your life will be happier day to day if you push more in that direction. And that was supportive at the time because I grew up in a way where I felt very out of place and I felt like I didn't belong in any capacity. And it was important for me to hear at that age that I could take care of myself or that I did have something to offer. So yeah, she supports in a very different way, but um, she's also hilarious. And that was very evident to me from the time I was a kid. She has always made me laugh. And our house was filled with laughter. Like she just really is quite naturally funny. Yes, that's evident. I I didn't read your childhood with her as abusive. I read it as a respite because the love is so evident and because it's also evident if you are a person with some awareness too that you know, you're getting parented by a grandmother who is parented by her mother, who is parented by her mother, who is like, you are just getting the the sort of uh, residue of everybody else's childhood and trauma and everybody is doing their best. And there's an awareness of who you are with your grandmother. Like she does see you and her telling you life is hard is really like a validation of what you're experiencing because you know, tell us about the town that you lived in too. Cause you were, you were sort of like in this in liminal space between, you know, every single person. Oh, 100%. Um, I grew up in a very small town in upstate New York um, where we were one of, you know, maybe 10 black people, five of whom I was related to. And it was an idyllic childhood in so many senses, in so many ways. Um, you know, I got to go outside barefoot in the summer and kind of be feral and run around in the grass and, you know, have that childhood. But it was also incredibly racist and people would not hesitate to call me the N-word to my face or point out things about my hair or my face or my skin. And it didn't really stop with with white people either. That was something that I had to adjust to as I got older. I also wasn't the right kind of black for most Mm -hmm. black people. Uh, So I really didn't feel like I fit in anywhere. I'm like, well, if I'm not black enough and I'm not white at all, (laughs) where where do I fit in? Um, And the town, again, it's very, it's progressive now, I think in a way that it just wasn't when I was a kid. Um, And I can see that, but I also have to honor the fact that there's just a through line here, like a real 
foundational element here that is not about acceptance of any kind. So to be Black is one way that I was excluded, but also I was really weird and I was super artistic and I listened to heavy metal and I just was my own person much earlier than most of the people that I knew. And they didn't know how to deal with it. Like my peer group didn't know how to deal with it. And then I went out in town and it was like a freak show. Uh, There was one, this didn't make it into the book, but I used to have a, a purple backpack and when I get bored in class and I would kind of doodle on it with markers and, and acrylic paint and stuff. And then <laughs> one day I decided to pop all the heads off of my Barbie dolls. And then I took a needle and thread and sewed them through the earring holes and attached them to my bag so that when I was in class, I could braid their hair when I was bored. And when I tell you to be a six foot tall, Black girl who listens to heavy metal walking around with doll heads attached to her bag. When I tell you how many heads that turned, I would go into the bank and be like, I'm here to deposit my very first paycheck. And they were like, let's call the cops. Like, what is happening right now? (laughs) I'm wearing black eyeliner as lipstick. Like, it was just truly wild that I didn't receive more. Yeah. (laughs) Like, more bullying than I actually did. Uh, but again, like I was encouraged to be that. I was encouraged yeah. to do that. Even when my grandmother was laughing at my outfits and laughing at the things that I did, she encouraged me to do that. And yeah, um, yeah I had to find my place in the world so much earlier than so many people. And I had to really struggle to find, you know, how does my my identity and how do my principles and how do the things that I believe in fit into this world that is really pretty pretty racist. And and to see that the extension of the racism that I experienced in my town as I got older, realizing, oh, this is also part of the world, mm-hmm. was pretty terrifying. It was terrifying. So I needed some kind of structural support. And my grandmother gave me that. We'll be right back. Your grandmother is this, you know, like a foundational relationship in your life, which not everybody has, right? Right. But she was a foundational relationship in your life because the other foundational relationship that is our birthright (laughs) that we all deserve was missing. And there's, I I do want to say that you write about having a negligent, abusive, absent mother with a lot of compassion. And it felt like you were even sort of aware of that as a child. You know, you mentioned to like the freedom of the 80s and like how good that felt as a child. But you also had that freedom, that sort of feral childhood because of what was missing at home. Right. Right. And I I didn't realize until I started writing this book uh, that I had any grace to give my mother. And I also didn't realize the extent to which I was really searching for her attention for my entire life. 
Um, that's something I figured out. That was a puzzle piece that clicked into place as I was writing this. And it wasn't difficult for me to write about her with compassion because prior to a very specific event, even though we struggled, you know, even though she was a single mom with two kids in the late 70s, early 80s, even though she was on welfare uh, or we were on welfare, you know, it wasn't horrible. It was not a horrible life. Like we really did have a lot of friendship, a lot of support, a lot of love. And so that part was really beautiful to write about. And it wasn't difficult to find that grace with her. But I also think it was easy for me to realize now at 44 that she was like a 27-year-old Black woman who was struggling in a time where she wasn't given a lot of opportunities. So it was really surprising to me. You know, I tried to start having a relationship with her again, you know, after I wrote the book and asked her some questions. And she said, yeah, you know, I really wanted, you know, there was an IBM plant in New Jersey. And I really wanted to work there. I wanted to learn how to like build computers and they just wouldn't hire me. And to find out that kind of thing, like, you know, she was just a product of her time and her environment in a way that was always going to put her kind of behind the eight ball a little bit. And I've experienced that in my own life. So now that I think we've had some parallels in those ways, you know, just simply being Black women in the world, that wasn't difficult for me to find that grace. But I also think that that's kind of just the spirit of my heart. Mm -hmm. And the pain that comes with writing about my mother is that I can't share that generosity of spirit with her because, you know, who she is and, you know, what I've learned away from her, what I've learned growing up with my grandparents, what I've learned, you know, as I went through the world as a young adult and an adult, I don't get to share that with her because we don't have a strong enough foundation where there was um, enough love that we could continue to grow together. So I don't get to share those things with her, but it's not difficult for me to see those things in her. Um, yeah. And it makes me sad. It makes me sad to think of the ways that she's kind of sabotaged herself simply because she's not willing or able to really examine her own life. And I think that, you know, there are people who examine their own life to the point where they are stunted and that you're like, girl, you got to go to a movie or something. You got to yes. get out of your head. Fucking read then, a book. Okay. Fucking read a, but not, not Gabriel life. Bernstein or whatever. Okay. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> read like like bossy pants. Like read a right. funny book. <laughs> like, read a read even a kid's book. Read what do people do all day? Just shut the fuck up. Yeah. Okay. And then there are also people who you're like, wow, you need to spend some time taking a dip in the river of yourself. Yeah. <laughs> and she just really never did that. So I think the sadness that comes with realizing her lack of opportunity to grow as a person is what gave me some space to write about her in a different way, in a way that I truly did not expect. You know, the way I've always told the stories of my life. And when I set out to write this book, I thought, yeah, my mom is the villain. And, <laughs> you know, she is the person that I cannot write about positively because there's really nothing positive about her impact on my life. But that's not the full story. And that's not the true story. Uh, so when I really sat down to think about it, you know, in that very surface level way, that was true. And that's how I got through a lot in my life is to think of her in that way, but it didn't become more true as I evolved. So yeah, I felt like I owed it to myself to write about the full range of that emotion and to really write about her in a way that didn't make her out to be anything that she wasn't because she's not an outright villain. You know, she's again, single mom who struggled and tried her best, but her best really wasn't good enough. And her best yeah. really wasn't focused on us. 
And so it really, you know, I couldn't, I had to be honest about that whole experience. And her best hurt you and it hurt your brothers. And like there are ripple effects of that. And we had Alyssa Altman on the podcast recently and her mother's situation is very different and also very similar. And she made this excellent point, which is like, you don't spend a year or a year and a half, really any amount of time, writing about something that you don't care about. Yes. Oh, that was the Motherland episode. I loved that. I loved that. And I do, I think about that a lot. When she said that, it really, really hit me in my heart because I've been asked, you know, oh, are you going to write more about this relationship? And and I keep thinking like, why would I continue to write about my deepest hurt? Like the reason I wrote this book to begin with is to get through that in a way that I hadn't been able to get through it before. But she's absolutely right. Like you don't spend all of that time with people that you don't, like or with people that you distrust or that you know you just you it's hard to spend that amount of creative or emotional effort to explain someone who is continuing to hurt you or continuing to harm you so i think that it's there is love there and that's again like the tragedy of of our relationship is that there will always be some level of love there but we are absolutely incapable of expressing it to each other yeah you grew up with Corey being basically like you're like, I mean, so close in age, <laughs> so yeah. close in age. And so you two experience a lot of the same things. And also you experience things so differently, which is also the nature of life, right? That, you know, two or three or, you know, four people can be in the same house and have a completely different experience, see things in a different way. I had this conversation with my brother recently where my dad died in 2014. I feel like just maybe two weeks ago, I like was like, oh, no, he loved me. I can move on. You know, like, I was like, oh yeah, like he did what he could. I get it. He, you know, went to a war when he was 17, you know, just put, put all these pieces together. And my brother had said to me, like, you have this idea of what your relationship to dad was like. And I remember growing up and being so envious because you were really close. Or I remember you guys having all this bonding time because like you could, I could catch a baseball. Uh, Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Dad loves me. I can catch a baseball. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. Done. yeah. I mean, you know, he also used to like throw it at my knees to teach me like your grandma. Oh, they don't all come to your glove. Like, oh, okay, cool. Thank you. Well, you just like shattered my kneecap, but thank you for the tough lesson. Pop fly right to my face. Cool. Uh, but it's and then like, if your teeth break, you don't get braces because it's your fault. You don't fault. get braces? What am I made of money? So your glove was for. Okay. I literally had to beg for braces. And at one point, my dad was like, you'll pay us back. Like my mom kept like receipts. She has an envelope full of receipts for what I owe her. There but, is a book by Bernard Cooper, I believe called The Bill from My Father. And I'm like, that is an absolutely hilarious premise because it's true. Uh, you don't get God. braces at 44 if your parents like actually care about you. Truly. <laughs> like they didn't want it. Yeah. No, we're not no. Spending, she'll no, spend no, no. the money when she can afford it. Yes, we don't, yes, we don't yes, yes. I mean, I got them, but then that was yeah. like also a resentment with my siblings. They're like, oh, she gets braces? Ex- like, well, oh, just, like, exactly. Changes like, the whole day. Like enough yeah. for your brother to say like, I was envious of your relationship yeah, because you I were know, really yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. You played catch to them. You talked about books, whatever. But like, so as you're writing this book, you know, you do reach out to your mom. Like, do you run things by Corey? What is Corey's recollection? How much of it, you know, matches yours? And what sort of different perspective does he have on growing up in these households? Yeah. I, as I was writing the book, I did not reach out to anyone. Um, I did not want anyone's input. I wanted to remember and experience my own emotions with those times. Um, 
But after I finished, I sent the book to my brother. And when I finished writing the book, I wasn't talking to my mother at that point. I hadn't talked to her for about like 20 years. And I kind of heard about her through other members of my family, but we just did not have a relationship. So I sent it to Corey and he wrote back. He's a very laid back, very stoic kind of like he would just like, you know, I'll play Frisbee golf on a Sunday. Like, oh, I'm four hours late to pick up my kid. Oh, well, I was having fun. Like he's that kind of guy. And so I didn't expect more than like, yeah, cool. That was like fun to read about or, oh, this sucks because I didn't like it. But he sent me the most thoughtful text that resulted in my calling him. And he said, you know, this was really painful because I wasn't there for you. And when I read this book, I realized that I wasn't there for you when we were kids. And I wish that I could have helped you more. And I wish we could have been closer to each other. And so when I called him, I said, you know, we were both kids and we were doing our best with a horrible situation, but we had completely different experiences with the same monster. Um, So there wasn't any way for you to help me because you didn't have the same experiences. So he would chime in and say like, oh, you should have included that story about the time I hit all those razor blades in the backseat of the car. Like I would cut open the cushion and put a bunch of razor blades in. And I'm like, I can't tell that story because I didn't do that. And I didn't know that until just now. <laughs> like what? So we actually ended up having these really deep conversations about things that he experienced that I didn't know about, or things that we experienced in totally similar situation, but in very different ways. And we have grown closer, you know, our, our teen years were just knocked down, drag out, but you know, in our twenties and thirties, we've become incredibly close. And, um, it's just been kind of enlightening to see his validation of the experience, even though he didn't experience so much of what I went through. And so, you know, I really don't, I don't need that validation to write the story, but it's nice to get it when the story's done uh, as a way to kind of, again, kind of solidify um, my own experience and my own, my own heart. So it was nice for that. I love that you didn't send it to them until you'd already written it. Um, That is for any writer listening to this, very good advice. And I feel like, I don't know where I got that from, but I also don't do that. Like I'll, I'll send it when it's like done because, you know, maybe I want you to hear it here first, but I also, yeah. Yeah. It's like, I don't want you to be surprised that there's going to be a book coming out with your name in it. Um, But I also realized that while I did that with my family, I didn't do that for anyone else in the book. So now that I've moved back to my hometown, for example, um, I wrote about this woman that I was friends with as a kid who really hurt my feelings. It was very cruel to me. And I ended up punching her in the face, which terrified me. And I ran home crying, uh, which caused my grandmother to say, either you go back out there and fight her or you're going to come back and fight me. So this ultimate confusion of like, I just hit my friend in the face. I punched someone. Hitting people is bad. Wait, you want me to continue fighting? And I either have to fight her or you? Like, or I have to elder abuse you? Okay. Yeah. Well, <laughs> these are my options. Okay, fucking weird. And then she sent me a message and she said, I read the book and it made me mad. And I was like, oh, fuck. And she's like, but then I realized, you know, I I was a bad friend and it made me so sad and our childhoods were so difficult. And, you know, she's grown up and we've been able to process that experience, you know, separately, completely separately. But I didn't consider that when I was writing the book that, you know, the people who were also in that orbit of my family and of my own life might not really enjoy reading about themselves in this way. And I I don't, I don't think it'll change the way that I write. You know, I still am not going to 
write to people and tell them, or, or co- I'm not going to contact people as I'm writing and tell them that I'm including them in anything, but I think I should do more outreach after the fact. So it's not a total surprise. Um, I had to change the name of the kindergarten girl and her family who called me the N-word because she she could be, as it was explained to me, she could be a civil rights lawyer right now. And mm. it could like be life ruining for her if I used her real name and then attached this hatefulness with her. Um, I sincerely doubt that's how she turned out. <laughs> yeah. Did you did you do a light Google? Did anyone look into it? Did the legal team look into it? We we did a light Google. Okay. Um, maybe couldn't find, there's, couldn't find anything. Yeah. But, you know, for just to be safe, that's the yes. only name that I changed. But I do think that for me, in terms of writing about my own life, I still wrote about these experiences, but tried to process them through the lens of my own emotions. So it wasn't that this person is inherently bad or good. It's that this was my experience with them at this time, which adds to the fabric of all the rest of the emotional (laughs) turmoil that I'm experiencing. So yeah, it feels like as a writer, I don't think that it's helpful to me to kind of consider what someone else's opinion might be before I even finish a story. Like I, I know myself well enough to know that'll stop me in my tracks. It will. It will. And it will like ruin you. And I have an uncle who's 87. He's very elderly. He doesn't have the internet. Thank God. You know, he goes to the public library, he writes and he submits to journals and he, you know, he types them up the letters and he sends them in, sends them in. He's like, he said he hasn't heard from his book agent who I'm about to goddamn call right back to my uncle's letters. You know, he doesn't have email right back. Okay. Right back. Right back. back. His book is still in print right back. But you know, I've got this uncle who's like, very Catholic. <laughs> and, and he said, you know, I read your books and, and oh my, <laughs> like, <laughs> I the don't agree. <laughs> I don't agree with every jot and quibble. <laughs> I was like, okay. I was like, why would you do that? Why would you read that? Like, why wouldn't I have warned you? Why wouldn't I have, you know, bought out all the bookshelves in La Crosse, Wisconsin, so that you could not read about my mother pulling my tampon out? Why? <laughs> like, but if I wrote books thinking that he would find them, I wouldn't write a word unless it were like a Hail Mary full of grace. (laughs) (laughs) The Lord is chaste and kind, and so am I. (laughs) And so am I. Love love Catholicism, and, you know, the Pope should be a man. And, uh, (laughs) no, it is not useful to us at all. It's not useful. It's not useful. And I think the format is like storytelling. If you know how to tell a story, you can tell a story in any format. And also when you write TV, your name pops up briefly before the episode, but no one is attaching it to you so personally as when you are writing a book with your name and face on the cover that is about you. Even though TV writers, we all know they pull from life right? Every character that's on a screen exists somewhere, you know, out in the world as well. Yes. And that is something that is, it really benefits me as a TV writer, especially since I started my career like so much later in the game than most people did. Um, I came to that career already having lived, you know, like 10 lives. And so it's easier for me to sit in a room and kind of think about, you know, how would this character respond to this? Or who is this character inherently? Um, You know, I worked with someone like that, or this is a situation I've been like, you do pull from your personal life, but you can easily mask it. You can mask it in a way that nobody knows, like you said, or 
they do know, but you've changed just enough that they're not quite sure. Or maybe you've split those personality traits between five different characters. (laughs) So it's never focused in one particular way that makes it so explicitly personal. And that's a way to add great layers to characters in a TV show, but it absolutely doesn't work for a book of your life. Like if you were to just kind of skirt over things and in a memoir and kind of, you know, lightly touch upon certain things, it, it doesn't really benefit the story and it doesn't create a full picture. And that's really kind of all I was trying to do. I think that, you know, when I originally set out to write this after years of just thinking, nobody cares about my life story. People have had it so much worse. This isn't unique or interesting. Like who cares? And after a while, the point I had to come to, to really get this book out of my heart was to say, I care. I need it to explain myself to me. Sometimes I need to understand the wealth of experiences I've had in order to understand where I am right now in life. So I started writing this book at this time when I I was having a big career shift and I was pivoting in all these different ways. And it helped to really center my own narrative. And I think that for me, that was the best way to approach writing this book and possibly any other memoir I might write is just, you know, centering your own experience and trying to figure out, you know, how much of this do I need to kind of expel in order to explain where I am now and keep a little history of your own your own life and your own experiences. Yeah. And you do have to keep something for yourself. Yes. You have to keep something for yourself. And you are writing about really intensely personal things. And as you're writing, how do you decide this is something that I can share and this is something that will remain for me forever and that's okay? It's really a process of figuring out what do I know to be true? So if I don't quite know, like, I don't know if this, how I fully feel about this yet, then I'm not going to write about it. You know, I think that I'm not really an exploratory writer in that way. And I'm, you know, I'm kind of a a, a toxically uh, self-reliant person. (laughs) So I don't want anyone to help me figure those things out either. (laughs) So I think, you know, if it's something that I don't understand fully yet, then I'm not putting it down on the page. And There are writers who are so skillful with that and figuring it out as they go, but I kind of need the ending to make my stories make sense. So I think that that's one layer of it. That's one part of it. But I also keep a lot of joy for myself. Um, I try to to lighten the load by sharing the pain, but I want to keep some of that joy just for me. There are things that, you know, I, I could write 17 books about my grandmother because she says something wild and hilarious every day. But it's so, so much of what we say to each other and so much of our time together is me realizing that what we have is really special. And Mm -hmm. so I don't want to always share her with the world. Like I'm actually a pretty private person, weirdly. Like, yeah, I have an Instagram and a Twitter account, but you know, you're never going to see the full inside of my house and you're never going to see the full inside of my brain or heart. You know, I look forward to, to my evolution. And so I need to keep things for myself in order to fuel the tank to keep that going. Um, so yeah, I, I keep a lot of joy to myself and that I only share intimately with people who are already in my world in a deep way. Um, but I also think it's, it's, it's hard for me to share things that I think would hurt other people. So when I was writing about my own child abuse, I didn't consider that my great aunt, you know, who's 90 <laughs> would read it and be devastated and, you know, call me and say, you know, I did not know any of this. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, it's because no one knew any of it for a very long time. Um, And she's always been so proud of me, but she, you know, she kind of was really hurt that 
I think that she thought we were very close and she eventually knew those things, but she didn't know the depth of it. And I think that you can't tell every single detail of every single bad experience to the detriment of, you know, your own support system. (laughs) And you can't tell every detail of your pain if it's not actually working to heal you in some way. So those are the kinds of things that I tend to keep to myself. Like I'm not interested in harming myself further uh, or exploiting anything to harm myself further. And I also don't want to outwardly and purposefully hurt anyone else. Um, If it happens by accident, I can't do anything about it. We'll be right back. You struck this balance really well where you do have to find the line between like what is the story, which is not just what happened, but why it matters, and what is just like, you know, reopening all of your wounds to like bleed out for, you know, the entertainment of other people or for, you know, your own sort of catharsis, which is, I suppose, can be therapeutic, but is actually not that's not how you tell a story. You don't tell a story by just repeating every single anecdote. Yes, you can't. <laughs> you can't. This, this, <laughs> if I had written about my grandmother and just wrote down what she said, you would think she was a fucking monster. <laughs> you have to put it, you know, the, the context was so important to me in writing this book. And that is the reason why you know, my agent even said this to me at one point, because I said, I feel like I'm leaving stuff out. And maybe I should put this story in and maybe I should include that. And he said, you're not a stenographer. Like you cannot do that. And it really hit me where I thought, oh, this is the editing part of this book. Like I can write as much as I want, but then I have to think about where does this fit in to the narrative of what I'm trying to tell? Because when I look at my book now at the finished product, I can say, yeah, I can see the arc. I can see that from beginning to end, this is someone who was looking for something that she found in a really unexpected way. And I never set out to write books with that in mind, but that is how I have to write to get the story out, is to really think about what am I trying to say and what is the end point here? And it doesn't necessarily mean, like I would at the end of my book, I, you know, I spoiler alert, I end the book by going away to college and you know, just getting in my car and driving. And that doesn't mean that my story ends there, but that was what made the most sense for me to tell that, again, that overarching story of what I was seeking and what I actually found. And so it's nice and it's helpful, I think, as a writer to not pen myself into having to tell a complete story. All I really need to do to make it feel good to me is really contextualize it and and think about what I've learned. That to me is a more natural way to write, but it's also the kind of book I like to read. (laughs) So I tend to veer towards that. Yeah. Your grandmother had such belief in you. And I think that comes through and just, you know, she was 
she let you be like your weird self, you know, and like watch a horror movie when you're seven and laugh at this part <laughs> at how stupid, how stupid the characters are, which, by the way, reading that, I was like, I was not allowed to watch anything growing up, like literally anything, <laughs> nothing, nothing. Like I didn't see Pretty Woman until two summers ago uh, <laughs> because I was like, oh, I don't know. It's kind of it's not really appropriate. <laughs> Like, oh, I don't know. Uh, I didn't see Dirty Dancing till like high school or college. And even then I was like, I'm not allowed to watch this guy. I don't know. Like if I was at a party in high school and I didn't feel comfortable, which was uh, there were only two parties. I once told my dead husband, there were only two parties in high school. He was like, that you knew of, nerd. I was like, okay, well, I called my parents both times. I was like, you got to come get me. (laughs) You got to come get me. There's no parents home. There's no one here. No one's in charge. I cannot believe that people are living like this. I can't believe this. This is not appropriate. But as a result, like I was afraid of things I didn't have to be afraid of. And I think reading that, like seeing like, you know, a little version of you, like watching the scary movie and seeing your grandma laugh at it is like, you do not need to be afraid that a man with, you know, knives for fingers is going to break into your room in the middle of the night. Like you can laugh at that. Right. And Your grandmother, in the very beginning of the book, gives you this piece of advice that makes no sense to a small child, which is to carry a switchblade in your pocket, and if any man tries to touch you, you stab him and ask a question later. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she's a big proponent of carry a little secret knife, and if anyone tries to put his hands on you, cut his throat, and then... (sighs) You can answer questions later. Like, not even just stab him a little. She wanted me to genuinely harm (laughs) and slash someone open. And it was, what's really wild when you think about um, what, what else I go on to say in this book is for all of her advice about how to protect myself, for all of her showing me these horror movies and telling me that there were so many things in the world that I don't need to be afraid of she wasn't able to protect me from the biggest horror or hurt or pain in my life. And it was the kind of thing that I think was unfathomable to her that someone could hurt a child in that way. She was very innocent in that way, I guess, where she definitely knew that there were horrors in the world, but she couldn't prepare me for everything. And no parent can. No parent can prepare their children for every pain that they might experience in this world. Um, So I think that her not so gentle way of (laughs) giving me this advice was an attempt to do that, to say, you know, there are so many things that I won't be able to control. I cannot control whether or not somebody is going to try to hurt you. But if they do, I can at least make you feel good about defending yourself or finding a way to talk about it. And I think that that also made it very hard for me to finally talk to her in a real way about my abuse because I was terrified. I was afraid that I had failed her in some way by not being able to protect myself from my stepfather. And it doesn't make any sense rationally, um, but that's that child mind that is trying to process everything that they've learned and known. And what I knew of my grandmother is that she always wanted me to protect myself. So I thought she's going to be mad at me that I wasn't able to fight him off. And I wasn't able to protect myself. Um, And I didn't carry a little secret knife. And I didn't carry anything. And there's nothing I could have done to stop it. So when I was able to finally tell her, and I do, you know, write about that moment in the book, it was a release in more ways than one. And the strongest part of that release was not what I expected. 
I expected to tell her and kind of brace myself for her anger. And when I received her love in its purest form, what for me felt like the first time, because I knew she loved me. I did not know how much she loved me until that moment. Mm-hmm. And when that happened and she was so loving and just, you know, kind of grabbed me and hugged me and told me it wasn't my fault. It's going to be okay. I hate him. I'm going to kill him. Uh, and I'm going to kill your mother. Like when she really <laughs> got to that point where she was still very much herself, um, but so loving to me. And she was that grandma that she wasn't ever able to be or wanted to be. She was that, you know, that shawl covered piece of mercy that I needed in that moment. And that was a real release for me. It wasn't finally talking about you know, being abused. It was receiving the love and care and support from somebody who I knew wanted my recovery and wanted me to recover from that in a way that didn't dismantle my life. There's a lot of, you know, narratives out there about how, you know, talking about your abuse is, you know, you bring it out to the light and you reveal it. And, you know, that's where the healing comes in. But for me, the healing started with realizing that there are so many different ways that I can be loved. And I never knew that before. You know, my mom's love was fleeting and really anemic. <laughs> and um, my my grandmother's love was really tough. My brother's love was like, to me, non-existent. I'm like, we just can't stand each other. <laughs> and, um, you know, re- revealing that to, to her just really like help shine a light on the fact that there are lots of different ways to love and that people can surprise the fuck out of you. And I think that I learned a lot about her in that moment. You know, I was definitely an observant child, but I wouldn't say that I was like incredibly emotionally. Um, I didn't have like a big emotional reserve and I am a triple Gemini. So even if I did, it wouldn't have worked. Ooh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You are rare. You're very rare. Oh, yeah. Wow. And for, like, I should be locked in a closet, like a character in a movie. Like, just keep that one. That is an ancient evil. Keep that one at bay. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that, you know, it's definitely, I didn't have the emotional wherewithal to really examine the people around me as a kid, but I learned so much in that moment about not just how people can surprise you, but just how deep the well of emotions can go. And um, it surprised me in the most delightful and and positive way. And it it helped me. It helped me move on. It helped me talk about it more and more. It helped me go into therapy eventually. It kickstarted my life. It really did. It kickstarted my life. I think I was headed for either suicide or just some really dampened version of my life before that moment. Oh, a dampened version of your life. Write that down. That's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank horrible you. and beautiful. I, I truly think like the only unconditional love in the world, it like flows from children up. Like every other kind of love, like of course it comes with conditions because adults have like as they're, you know, raising children, as they're like, you know, we have expectations and children have nothing. They just arrive in this world and look up and think like, it's you. That's, yes. I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it. Yes. We don't need the background story. Like, this is great. This is great that you're here and you're smiling at me and you're in my face and this is what I have. And I think, again, that's where I really did have to go to kind of a deep emotional place to even write this book because I wanted to remember 
what that felt like with my own mother, where there was a time where I was just so excited to see her and to be around her and to watch her get ready, you know, to go out and just really that unconditional love that I had for her, which I think is something that I never considered prior. Our relationship was always so imbalanced and focused on how does she love me? And I think in writing this, I was very much able to tap into that that child mind and think about, well, how did I love her? And what did that feel like? And what did it mean for me when that love went away? Because I can say right now, and not proudly, but truthfully, I don't love my mother. I don't mm-hmm. like my mother. You know, I don't get along with my mother. We don't speak. We tried. Um, my Aunt Renee, who I write about in the book as well, um, my Aunt Renee died in March of breast cancer. She had stage four breast cancer. And, you know, I was with her for a lot of that last year of her life and, and at the end as well. And she asked me, we were talking about family and we talked about my family a lot. Her relationship with my mom was pretty non-existent because she never forgave my mom for giving us up. And that affected them in a deep way that I didn't even know. You know, I didn't know. And they had a very close and, you know, sisterly bond for most of their lives. And it was really hurtful for my my aunt. Like when she talked about it, you know, she talked about it with a lot of pain that she didn't have a sister anymore. It didn't feel like that to her. And so we were talking about it and she said, you know, I know you don't need a mother, but I just don't want you to go through your life carrying any extra pain. Um, which I would, she said it is extra pain, but I I would think of it as more like residual pain. Um, And it kind of took me by surprise because I was like, oh, I've already solved my issues with mom. I can't stand her and that's it. Uh, (laughs) The more we talked about it. Yeah, yeah, like, what are you you talking about? I'm done with that. Therapy over. And (laughs) she, you know, I think it was, it was more, it was more impactful to me because I knew that she was dying. So for her to kind of have that revelation at the end of her life felt like something I should sit up and pay attention to. So I said, yeah, you know, I can try this. And I asked her, you know, do you want to see anybody before the end? And, you know, she was planning to go into hospice care. And I said, do you want to see my brother? Do you want to see mom? And, you know, I'll I'll fly him out. And she did. So I flew out my brother. And then I flew my mom out with my little sister, who's also now in the picture. Like she had another child with this man, three in total. And um, I flew both of them out and they spent, you know, like a week with my aunt and went through their own healing or what they needed at least to heal a little bit. And that kind of opened the floodgates a little bit for my mom to start talking to me again. This is before the book came out, but after the book was written and um, we started talking, you know, we talked a little bit and I was really open with her about the fact that I don't trust uh, this relationship and that we have a lot of work to do. Then she asked to borrow some money from me and I stupidly let her and <laughs> she stopped talking to me when the book came out. <laughs> so she borrowed some money, the book came out and then she didn't talk to me anymore. She stopped working on the relationship and she's not emotionally resilient. She doesn't have the wherewithal enough to say, this hurts me. Um, she's someone who goes through the world feeling like the world kind of owes her a living. Um, and that's an effect of her narcissism. So she's not able to say to me, you know, you hurt my feelings or I didn't like reading this. So instead she just shuts down. And so I found out from my brother, (laughs) I said, um, do you think mom has read my book? And he said, I don't know. Let me ask her. We were hanging out on my porch one day and he sent her a text and asked her if she's read my book. And she wrote back, I have nothing to say about it. 
or what did she say? She says, I, I have no comment and that's all I'll say about that. And again, doesn't say anything to me about how she feels about it. But now that I live here again, I'm hearing rumors that she's going to sue me, that she's angry, but she still will not talk to me. And I didn't close that door. I didn't close that door. I actually kicked it wide open uh, when we started talking again. So the kind of strange side effect of writing about her with grace and remembering that part of our life is realizing that that part of our life together is truly over. Um, that we are not going to have that mother-daughter bond and we're not going to have that miraculous movie ending, you know, like Terms of Endearment style or something. Like we're just not going to have that. And I haven't had a mother for a very long time, but I only recently realized that I don't need one and that I've done so much to mother myself. And I have found mothering that comes from other people and care that comes from other people that I wouldn't wish it on anyone. I wouldn't wish that people didn't have this relationship with the person that brought them onto the planet, but sometimes it ends up that way. And I'm, I'm not willing to sacrifice myself and all that I've learned and all the ways that I've grown in order to have that relationship with her. So it's just going to be, this is just what it's going to be. And I think that, you know, writing the book helped me realize that, that I don't have to keep trying to have a relationship with someone who is so intent on hurting my heart. And it sucks that it's my mom. But if it were anyone else in the planet, I would have the same exact response. Yes. If any other, if a romantic partner treated you this way, if, you know, uh, an uncle, uh, a friend treated you this way, people would have no problem saying they're gone, they're out, they, you know, betrayed a a very uh, sacred part of any relationship. And so they cannot be in your life. But there is this expectation, uh, specifically with mothers. Dads disappear all the time, by the way. Oh, Oh, mine did. I never met the dude. (laughs) It's like... You know, it's like they just do. They just do. They're like, you know, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You got a, you got a shitty dad. What are you going to do about it? Okay. Like, let it go. But like, moms are expected to never be this bad. It is an aberration. It is a disruption to the natural order of things. Moms cannot be this bad. I think that for moms who behave this way for whatever reason, there's so much shame. That in order to survive, you have to compartmentalize, pretend it was somebody else, pretend something else happened entirely. You mentioned the unexamined life. It has to remain unexamined because you've broken every law of, of nature. And yet for children, the expectation is still, well, like they are your mother. So they gave you this gift. You're here on the planet. You know, like you stretched out their their stomach muscles, like you made their belly button weird. And now you owe them this. You owe them right. your life. And to hear you say like, you don't. No. I feel like that's just going to be so transformative for so many people. Thank you. No, I, I don't. And this is maybe the most feminist take I think I could even have about it is neither one of us owes each other anything. It's a shame that we weren't able to naturally build a relationship together, but I don't owe her anything as much as she doesn't owe me anything. And I think that she's not the villain of the story. There is no villain of the story. And I hope, I hope that is what comes through in my book more than anything is that she made a lot of really bad decisions and a lot of people make really bad decisions about themselves and their children and their families. But I don't think it should be a lifelong punishment for her. I think that she knows what she did and she's felt 
the pain of what she's done in her own way. And so for me, it's not so much that I need her to be bad. What I needed to understand over all of these years is that I don't need her at all. And that is the hardest thing to rectify. I don't need you to be bad. I don't need you to be in. I don't need you at all. And you're supposed to, you're supposed to need your mom. So I think that in that mother, you know, in that child mother dynamic, it goes both ways and Mm -hmm. society does its damnedest to make mothers feel guilty about everything they do, good or bad, uh, (laughs) more in between, and is really intent on pushing this binary of good and bad. Um, I think people are more complicated than that. And I think that I can't deny her humanity as just a person on the planet any more than she can deny mine. So I think that it really it works both ways. You know, the, the power for me is not in persevering in some kind of weird way. It's just in realizing that my life's better when I don't need her. And my life is, is more my own when I'm not focused on the failures of that relationship from both of us. And that somebody can be not a villain, and somebody can be also a person who hurt you, and they can be a person who is deserving of compassion, and that still doesn't give them a seat at your table. At all. At all. That's really, that is the sadness. I think when I talk with my friends about, you know, our lives or my life, that is the the sadness for me, is that I don't get to share who I am with her. She doesn't know who I became. I could be sitting right next to her in a room and she cannot see me. She doesn't know who I am. So that makes me sad. Not that she can't see it. It's it's sad that we, that we can't share it. You know, I can't change who she is or how she is, but again, like she just doesn't have access to, to me. And I think that that's something I've dealt with and, and gotten through and will find new and different ways to have to deal with and get through as time goes on. You know, that's yeah. the other reason I left my book a little open-ended is because I don't think you're ever done exploring these relationships or they don't always hurt you the same way, but you're never like, well, all right, done with that now. I don't need to talk about mom ever again. It's like, no, like right. as we age and we're going through it now, we're going through it right now because I am taking care of her mother. I think that um, one of the other things that I've, I haven't really ever talked about before, but something that's very true about the side effect of having written this book is it is now abundantly clear to my mom that I love my grandma more than her, mm-hmm. that we're closer, that we have a better relationship, that I would move heaven and earth to make sure mm-hmm. that the end of her life is as comfortable and joyful as possible. And I will not do that for my mom. And I think that has to be painful to feel like you've been leapfrogged in your own relationship. So this is a book that's about me and my mother as much as it is about her and her mother. And like you said at the beginning, it's like these generational waves that we're all constantly addressing because we're constantly being raised by people who have carried this trauma or carried these personalities with them. So I definitely, I can acknowledge that. And I know that can't be easy for her, but there's also nothing I can do about it. There's nothing I can do about it that wouldn't diminish my own life. And I'm just not willing to do that. And it's, it's been wild to think about how, how selfish I don't feel. I think we're supposed to feel selfish when we choose our own happiness or when we choose anything in our life that that we want that isn't in line with what the culture says we should want or desire. 
And that's the, the, the primary thing I've learned in my time so far on this earth is that I cannot sacrifice my own desires for the benefit of somebody else, especially if they're not painful, hurtful things. So yeah, I just, I feel very resolute and I feel like, um, you know, again, the the mother daughter dynamic that I started exploring in this book is one that just has a ripple effect across all of the women in my family. Um, So it's been really interesting and cool to kind of dig into that from a very personal place. And how did, uh, how did your grandma feel about the book? Did she read it? Did she listen to it on audio? What did, what was her? <laughs> yeah. She, did she, she leave a review? Okay. <laughs> she left her two-star review on Amazon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> she actually, uh, the other day she said, you know, I keep trying to read it, but I get so tired. And then like the price is right is on. And like, I just, you know, so she listened to the audio book. <laughs> Like glad I could bore you to sleep. That's wonderful. Yeah. Um, but she listened to the audiobook and she loves it. She absolutely loved it. And one thing that was really touching in a moment that I didn't know I would get to have, because I've been talking to her about writing this book for so many years. Um, I came home and I physically gave her a copy. My book came out like a week or two after I moved back here. And she just hugged it and just started crying and was just so overcome with emotion. And she said, um, I'm just so proud of you. And um, I know that she is. But she has dementia now. Um, so she doesn't remember a lot in the short term. And so for her to remember that I wrote this book was really special. When she was listening to it and hearing the stories, she always has such a good memory for things that happened so long ago. You know, she was listening to the book and then she would launch into this story of like, oh, I remember that. And, you know, why didn't you write about that time that we you know, you grew so fast that we couldn't find a belt that fit you. So we just used a piece of rope and like, she'll just kind of like launch into these stories. And it's really, I just am more aware of how, how little of that I'm going to get in the future. Yeah. So yeah, she, she read it. (laughs) She listened to it and um, it's been helpful to her to remember what she loved about raising her family. And also I'm going to cry now, but like how beautiful that like parts of you that you forgot to store away are like still inside of her, like sustaining her and like, just like that's, that's inside of her for like the long haul. And like, she doesn't need to know what she ate for breakfast. (laughs) Like You can delete that. Like, but no, she, but it's true because she doesn't remember. She'll call yeah. me and say, "Like, were you here this morning? And did I yeah. take my pills? And did I yeah. eat?" And she really won't remember that. But when I walk in the door and her face lights up, and she's just like, "Oh, you're here! I'm so happy to see you." Yeah, that's very important to me right now, and I I want to keep for as long as we have that. I want her to have as many good memories of of her life as possible because she did impossible things to make my existence bearable. 
and to make my life, you know, to help me take off and to help me launch and to, you know, give me that supportive hand as I threw myself off of several cliffs. (laughs) And so I'm glad that I was able to do this uh, and release this book and have this experience with her while she's still at least aware enough to to get it, because that wasn't a given. We've done a lot of episodes about complicated parental relationships. A few that come to mind are Motherland, that was very recent, The Nidra, also recent, Untying Knots and What's Gonna Happen to Me, that's a two-parter from 2020, God's Plan, Our Parents' Debts, Heather, About Bob, that's all that comes to mind now, but that should tide you over. The point is, all those episodes... And Danielle is the first person that I've heard say this. It's just in realizing that my life's better when I don't need her. And my life is is more my own when I'm not focused on the failures of that relationship from both of us. It is a big thing to get there, to a place where you don't need a person you thought you couldn't live without that you don't need them present, and you don't need them to be the villain in your life. I wish that for anyone that resonates with. Danielle's book, again, is called The Ugly Cry, and you can get it wherever you buy your books. We will link it in the show notes, too. This has been an episode of The Terrible Reading Club. You're listening to Terrible Thanks for Asking. Our team is Marcel and Jacob and Jordan and Nora. That's me. And our theme music is by Joffrey Lamar Wilson. And we make this show at APM Studios at American Public Media. Executive producer and editor Beth Perlman. Executives in charge Lily Kim, Alex Schaefer, Joanne Griffith. <laughs>